How will we understand the craft era? This is a Birvana audio blog. Please forgive verbal stumbles and fumbles. And when you're done listening, consider a pint from Birvana's partners, Guinness Brewing of Dublin, Ireland and Baltimore, Maryland, Freem Family Brewers of Hood River, Oregon, and Rubens Brews of Seattle, Washington. Their support makes this site possible. I've been writing a lot more passages post posts the past couple of years than I ever did before. Breweries are aging, and many are passing away or being sold to larger concerns. Very few of the largest U.S. breweries are independent anymore, and a lot of the older breweries are shrinking, vanishing, or turning into something other than breweries. Meanwhile, hard seltzers have achieved a market share. It took breweries, uh, craft breweries decades to match, and many erstwhile beer makers are busily investing in their latest hard coffee or canned cocktails. There is every reason to believe the year-plus COVID disruption will have a long-lasting effect on the alcohol market, and I wonder if we won't use 2020-2021 as a convenient place to divide the craft era with whatever we're about to inherit. inherit. It will mean reckoning with this era, attempting to make meaning out of how we got here. We are a species of story. We knit together selected events and facts to create meaning of a disorganized world. The stories we tell ourselves create the reality we inhabit. In our little corner over here in the beer world, that narrative, which has been broadly consistent since the late 1970s, has begun to fray. As we enter this new phase, where the very notion of craft loses any coherence, we'll begin to tell ourselves a new story. In an effort to begin that reckoning, I started to think about the last 44 years, noticing where it was less than we imagined in some ways, but also perhaps much more. The craft era. Although brewery numbers hit a nadir around 1980, it was in many ways the pinnacle of a certain kind of beer culture in the U.S. The country, with a population of 230 million people, drank 188 million barrels, and almost half, uh, and almost all of it was made domestically. In the 400 years Europeans lived in America, people never drank more than they did in that moment. By comparison, last year we drank 191 million barrels but had 100 million more citizens. The craft brewing revolution was, measured in dollars, a tepid one. As an economic force, craft brewing had almost no impact on U.S. brewing market for decades. It didn't achieve a single percentage point of the market until 1994, and by the end of the century was still around 3%. Meanwhile, domestic beer steamed along, holding steady around 200 million barrels annually. Craft brewing didn't start becoming a real player for another decade, 30 years after its birth, and even then, it was making slow inroads into the fuller market. Only by the mid-teens had it achieved any real substance, with 12% market share. Although more important to the industry, it was earning more than $1 in $5 of revenue. So already we see two competing narratives emerge. Craft was a slow-building, minor phenomenon, or it was a revolution that changed everything. In fact, both are true. In the lived experience of beer drinkers, something more profound is happening. That's why when we think about the post-COVID world of beer, we may have more luck understanding it if we look beyond sales figures. Indeed, my guess is those will appear relatively static, possibly for years to come. As I worked through a conceptual model for understanding the period, three different lenses emerged, financial, cultural, and evolutionary. Each has something to tell us about beer in America over that span, and yet each has its limitations. Taken together, perhaps they come to telling the full picture. Volume growth in three phases. Let's stick with dollars for a moment, but pull out the microscope and take a more granular view. 
The craft era didn't proceed uniformly, but went through periods of growth and retrenchment. The first started with New Albion and ran through the middle 90s. This was a period of rapid brewery expansion, but little real growth. By early 1996, entrepreneurs had founded a thousand breweries, but sold almost no beer. Yet that doesn't quite capture the full picture. Josh Knoll uh, revealed a fascinating detail in barrel-aged stout and selling out. In the early 90s, Sam Adams, Boston Lager, and Pete's Wicked Ale accounted for a third of all craft beer sales. I suspect adding Sierra Nevada and one or two others would account for half the market. That success and dominance by leading brands both alarmed big companies and encouraged investors. The big companies began responding, making their own versions and investing in new breweries, which probably helped craft beer attain broader cultural salience, see below. Meanwhile, investors created a gold rush atmosphere, not quite as big as the dot-com era that followed, but with similar results. Then craft beer crested. Sales never declined, but in 1998 they were completely flat, and a lot of breweries failed. That second phase was more like a hibernation. Brewery counts didn't budge, and volumes barely ticked up. Breweries tried to survive paying off debts from overspending in the mid-90s and going through the first round of consolidation. In the third phase, craft beer became big business. It went on a decade-plus run of growth and became a substantial force in brewing. It featured the second round of consolidation, which confounds data analysis. But if you sweep all the breweries making IPAs in the country, this segment probably uh, now accounts for a third of total revenue. Finally, by 2015, it delivered on that early 90s promise. Beer evolution before and after IPA. In some ways, 2011 is the most important year in American craft brewing. That was the year IPAs finally became the best-selling craft style. It signals a watershed in beer evolution, and in this regard, craft brewing's influence has been far more profound. Up through the turn of the century, most U.S. craft breweries were reproducing European styles. They were leading... Uh, they were learning different techniques and processes. Then in the late 90s and early aughts, they began to rework those techniques to serve their own purposes and developed a new tradition in brewing built around flavor and aroma of their native hops. It was a watershed moment that transformed not just U.S. brewing, the U.S. brewing industry, but brewing around the world. We notice what an effect this has had in the U.S. Brewery numbers skyrocketed, hoppy styles metastasized. From around 2,500 breweries in the early 10s, uh, new brewery growth hit staggering levels, more than tripling in the next seven years. Breweries started building business models around IPAs, and those that did generated the most excitement. Breweries with different identities had to adapt, remaking themselves as IPA breweries, or at least offering IPAs to satisfy that thirst. But the effect was bigger than the U.S. and rippled out worldwide. I noticed this when I was traveling around Europe in 2011 and 12. Craft Brewery now meant a small operation making IPAs, along with a smattering of, of other styles that spoke craft in a loud American accent, usually down to sleek industrial spaces Americans favored. It was just starting then. When I returned on a European tour in 2019, American-style IPAs thrived in every city I visited. American IPA has become a worldwide phenomenon and is largely responsible for the thousands of new breweries that have opened since 2020. 2010 from Beijing to Guadalajara. Not since the spread of Bohemia's pale lagers in the 19th century have we seen a style spread so fast and to so many places. I would have found it literally unbelievable, unbelievable a decade ago if you had told me a staid uh, Belgian brewery like Roman would be making IPAs, but now they must. 
and here at home it is becoming as dominant among craft breweries as the classic European styles are in their home, re home regions. The Cultural Revolution Applying a cultural lens is the final way to consider the impact of the last four decades. A lowbrow bev low beverage in 1980, it was not considered worth drinking with food, pizza and burgers accepted, possibly. A pub was a bar, a smoky, windowless room that attracted a hard-drinking crowd. Of course, most beer of the era was purchased in bulk at the grocery store, though, not on draft. People lugged home suitcases full of dozens of cans. Beer culture started in vacant, late-night parking lots among teens and didn't become more sophisticated as they aged. This is the uh, another in the way. Uh, this is another of the ways in which the change has been large, and why it feels large as well. Breweries are everywhere. They are family friendly and no longer lowbrow. They are considered fun places for young people to go. Alcohol has generally lost its tawdry associations, but beer has managed to transition to a category of wholesome fun, safe for mixed parties and kids. Brewery tap rooms remain predominantly white spaces, however, as pubs have been for generations. This is one unfortunate area of stagnation. As beer has become more respectable, the number of places serving it have multiplied. Restaurants mostly have tap lists now, and chain restaurants, hotels, airport diners, and even coffee shops sell craft beer. I know Portland is an outlier, but businesses have learned that adding a few handles of draft adds fun, so now venues from movie theaters to game shops sell beer. That in turn has shifted who drinks beer, which now includes every demographic. In one of those strange paradoxes, the more beer became special, the more it penetrated ordinary activities. Creating an upscale market has made it ubiquitous. Cultural change didn't proceed in phases like the industry and style evolutions did, nor did it happen at the same pace nationally. Some pockets of the country shifted sooner and others still lag. Culture proceeds gradually by accretion. And yet even in areas where breweries have been slow to sprout, Pale ales and wit beers have found their way into mainstream life. In 1977, beer played a stable role in the U.S., one most Americans would describe in similar terms. The beverage itself was easily definable. In the following decades, our perceptions changed, fueled by an evolution of the beverage itself and the people who made it. Once brewery evoked a factory, massive in scale and therefore unknowable to those outside its walls, Later, it became, a human si it became human sized and called to mind small buildings where you could meet the person who made the beer in your glass. Beer once meant something small, uh, straw colored and fizzy, and now it means something slightly darker, less fizzy, and probably hoppy. Once it was common and unremarkable, and now is accused of being twee and over elaborate. The past is always rewritten to conform to the story of the present. As Beer begins its inevitable transformation, possibly accelerated by COVID. We will revisit the craft era over and over again. It has been a hugely consequential time. Yet, the largest effects may be in areas we are least likely to recognize them, the water to a fish's eye. In the end, craft beer may not have been a financial rainmaker. The era changed beer, though, both here and abroad, as well as the way we drink it. We shouldn't lose sight of how important those changes have been.